the parent rabbits who pull back panicked for a moment and they're like no you get like oh you tear like they're they're they they're like oh where is uh grum the 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 growler oh uh and when it's revealed that it's just them the they ask them to leave uh and martin says that there are no place to ask them to leave why were they harassing travelers uh, the father apologizes and asks that Martin be quiet. Uh, they are actually delicate creatures. Uh, we learn their names. The father's name is Fescue. The mother is Mildwort. And the twins are Burnett and Buttercup. These are all plants. Uh, See, last... I thought it was Mildwort. It's Mildwort. Okay. Uh, their last name is Murdop, hence the creation they use to protect their home from intruders. Which was revealed to have been built by the, built by, like, their grandfather or whatever the fuck uh the mm -hmm. father sheepishly asks if they've had tea yet and grum says they're always down for food do they have soup uh mildwort snootily says no soup isn't good for you at this time of the day uh they follow them back down to their roomy spotless burrow uh palum gesturing to grum uh that uh, about the rabbits behind their back like palum does like a gesture to show that they're snooty because he Pal basically puts his finger under his nose and lifts it up. It's an old saying of like, oh, they've got their nose in the air. Yeah. And Palum and Grum, like this from them, I actually don't feel as weird about them acting like this because Palum and Grum, as we've seen in the past, hedgehogs and moles are considered lower class creatures mm -hmm. with the way that they act and who they are as people and the, the jobs that they do, they're quote unquote lower class. And so them you know, reacting the way they are to this family of rabbits doesn't feel that bad to me. I know to you it was very weird, and, like, I agree, it is odd. Well, it's it's not so much their reaction to it, because it's just more that, like, Brian immediately starts calling out, like, oh, they're snobby, oh, they're snooty, and it's like, well... It's it's an odd tone <sighs> to take in this moment. But yeah, It so feels very out of place. Yeah. So tea is a very formal affair. Paws are washed with, like, lavender soap, they, there's like they spread a tablecloth out on the table um fescue like they've got like a pot of like hot tea they've got wafer thin cucumber sandwiches little little scones with some jam on them like this is this is tst y'all uh fescue is even prompted by his wife to say grace it's like whoops are you saying grace to the seasons apparently I'm just, uh, so, yeah. Okay, the, here it is. For all we receive for tea, thanks to the seasons be, partake we sparingly of this good meal. Yeah. Mm. Um, it's just such a weird tone to take in this moment because of everything that's happening kind of on either side of them. Uh, of, of like this plot, like this is the quote unquote a plot of the story. Um, following martin because martin is the main character so this is the a plot with the b plot on either side of them is just odd we've talked in the past about how brian picks weird quiet moments to portray this is one of those yeah, it's not as I mean... out of place as some of them have been in the past but it is still just kind of like what is happening i i think like it's a problem with, you know, like, the Murdops are not, like, they're not out of place for their attitude. They live, they do live alone, so it's, like, implied that they're isolated. 
They've got their their habits and their rituals and so on that are they're different. But they're not like entirely in the wrong and they're not entirely in the right either. They shouldn't be just randomly yelling at random strangers. No. But they are protecting got... themselves because this yeah. is dangerous country. My my weirdest thing is like you mentioned they're oddly modern because like with these settings we don't get this kind of like situation a whole mm-hmm. lot with this kind of very it feels a little like 1950s British. I was gonna say that. Yeah, I was like, this when is they like talk about like the spotless, the spotless just post World War Two British attitude is how this feels. Very post World War Two. Very for us, this is very like this is very modern in comparison to literally everything else about the setting. I mean, it, it when they mentioned the the spotless borough, like that emphasis on the borough being spotlessly clean. I was literally imagining a 50s kitchen, you know, that the kind that you would see in the old magazine adverts and so on, just absolutely spotless, everything in its place, mm-hmm. all the, the old appliances. Like, it feels like we have stepped out of the medieval and into a 50s British satire. Yeah, it's... <laughs> it would be almost Monty Python if it was, if it, if it was at all funny. Yeah. And it's only kind of funny because of Grum and Pelham. Otherwise, it's just weird. It's awkward. It's awkward. It's so odd. And you had a good comment about how, like, this kind of thing feels, makes the book feel lighthearted, but also kind of detracts from the book. Because, like, we didn't need this in here. Because the only piece of important, quote unquote, important information we get is about the warden. Who comes up who's gonna we'll get into that but that's the only piece of really important bit of information i know why it's in here because uh it's to slow the plot down brian is literally like i mentioned this in the last recording there's a there's a problem with tone in this book and plot because brian keeps slowing the plot down I feel like this book is interesting, but it doesn't need to be as long as it does. Like, there's a lot of things that have happened that Brian could have already taken out and made this book half the length. Um, And this is one of those sequences. Like, it doesn't really need to be here. Yeah. It's just here to slow the plot down because otherwise Martin and the others would get back to Noonvale too fast. And then he wouldn't be able to do all this stuff with Marshank. But then conversely, he's due with more of Marshank because he's slowing Martin and the others down. So it's this weird cause and effect of every time he slows one plot down, he's got to slow the other plot down, and that helps stretch the book out more. Yeah. Again, was he being paid for the length of the book? You know what? You read, and I'll check something. (laughs) Well, I want to make another comment as well. Like, if if you're not reading these all at once, and if you're reading them, like, maybe a chapter or two at a time to some kids at night... This sort of thing feels less out of place because we come back to he was writing these books for his own children, you know? So, like, he was probably reading these out loud to his kids, like, as he was, like, getting to the final draft, you know? So, like, some of that feels very, like, okay, he's doing this so that, like, the kids get a little bit more tension because he's only reading a few chapters at a time in the evenings, like, my dad would do this with, like, the Narnia books and the Lord of the Rings books and The Hobbit. Like, this is a thing my dad would do. This is a thing dads do when they read books to their kids. Mm -hmm. So oddly universal, isn't it? Okay, so a quick Google 
shows they don't really have any information on how he was paid for the books like a quick google check Mm -hmm. there's no information on how he was paid but i'm also laughing because like one of the questions was what religion is redwall and the answer is is there religion redwall no there's not religion in redwall it's like yes there is we just don't know what it is there's no specified religion in redwall yeah the mood around the table is stiff and frosty oh boy uh Grum does compliment Mildwort's scones, and she very sniffily says, Thank you. There's more in the cupboard for tomorrow. Uh, and she doesn't say this, but Fescue does. There's no point in eating all your food at once. You know, they, they have leftovers. I will say it is it, it is another level of classism to be able to have leftovers. That's why it's kind of like a joke sometimes. Like, you'll see people, like, make jokes about, like, food leftover. Yeah. Or, like, I know that, like, Europeans have, like, a really weird thing about American portion sizes in restaurants, but it's like, you know, it's like, we're, we're supposed to take that food home. Like, yeah. if you're not eating at some kind of a fancy sit-down, like, black tie restaurant, like, most of the time you're expected to take some of that food home. That's why yeah. takeout boxes are such a thing in the States. You know, ex- extra food is a sign of hus- hospitality in the States. It's a sign of hospitality. It's it's also like if you're not getting it from someone else or somewhere else, if you have leftovers yourself, it's a sign that you had enough to spare. Yeah. You know, you're in like a, a time of um, uh, of like prosperity, having that extra, having that spare that you're able to put it away for later rather than eating what you were able to make all at once. A lot of the times like we'll end up with uh, leftovers on like whatever sides we make to go with like the main part of the meal uh, and we forget to eat them <laughs> not just that but leftovers like in in some cases leftovers are actually the basis for entirely new meals yes like my grandmother um she would buy like one big chunk of steak whatever or not steak but one big chunk of meat whatever she could get at the start of the week it would be the roast on monday and then on tuesday it would be sandwiches then on Thursday, or like, and then on Wednesday, it would be sandwiches again. Then by Thursday, it would be stew. Yeah. And then by Friday, it would be whatever was left over. She would make it into like stew with a, you know, like noodles or rice. Yeah. And then Saturday or well, actually Friday, it didn't matter because they were Catholic, so they ate fish. But <laughs> somehow we come only, back to the Catholic that's only and the fish for a again. very short part of the year, though. Uh, no, actually. No. It depends on which part of Catholicism you follow. For some Catholics, you don't eat meat on Friday flat out. Weird. Chevy only does it during Lent. Again, it depends on how Catholic you are. And, you know, this was back in the 60s and 70s. That's fair. That's fair. But yeah, like having food left over, uh, a lot of times we won't end up having a lot of food left over because we made just enough for the three of us, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, like, that's all we need. Uh, but yeah, having, having extra is a, a, a sign of class and prosperity and having the ability to do it. And I, this is not me saying that anybody who ends up, even if you are lower class, poor, etc., if you have leftovers, like you're in a good place, like sometimes you just have leftovers. Again, uh, it's a very weird tone Brian is taking here, and I'm not yeah. sure how I want to react to it. Like it, yeah. I know he's trying to be comedic, but it just feels very it weird. Comes off weird with everything else that's going on around them. Again, it, like you, you know said, it's is? that slowdown. Yes, it's mean spirited. A little bit. 
it is like it, it could be funny, but like it could be funny. Well, but was they it? haven't done anything to earn this. When was Brian Jakes born? Nineteen thirty-nine. So he was like in his early twenties, in like just after the the uh, Second World War, yeah. right? Like in the fifties. Yeah, so that would have been like the end of rationing and so on. Yeah. So like some of this is probably yeah he's making fun of them because he because from everything that I've read about him is like he didn't grow up in a well-to-do family, right? Right. Um. Dock worker and dock so worker. on. He, he was fairly low class um, for most of his life. So, like, this this could be him making fun of that type of, like, mentality. Because there's there's a little bit of it as well where, like, people like the Murdops feel that it is them doing a favor to other people for them to invite them into their homes. That's and true. And share with them. Like, it's them doing a favor for you you need to appreciate us for doing this favor, right? Yeah. And, like, I, you also... No, go. I also do wonder if, like, the the trope of, like, stingy British folks, especially, like, with this 1950s vibe, how much of that is trauma from the war and rationing? Mm -hmm. Some of it is probably that. Like, there is... This, this is something that we can't ignore with some of the ways that Brian writes is that he does have that. That is a thing... That, like, he, you know, it shows up in your writing. Like, even if you don't intend it to, it comes up. It's why, like, a lot of, like, his humanitarian ideals tend to pop up when it comes to Redwall itself. It just shows up because that's what he thinks about. That's what he knows. Like, there's any, a few of our listeners also listen to my actual play podcast, you know, Hope's Hearth. And Kit, you've been on it. You know, we're mm -hmm. very communist. <laughs> And even if we're not intending for that particular game for that to necessarily happen, that's just how we think. So it just happens. And it's why, like, you'll hear me go off about unionizing while we're mid-book. Mm-hmm. Like... Okay. Let's go. Yeah. Uh, you, you make a good point also that, like, even if we weren't going with them making fun of it, if we're just reading this straight, that, like... Because uh, you had a note here that, like, the Murdops are sharing a table with complete strangers who scared the shit out of them, who mm -hmm. made them faint, who, in their minds, attacked them, even if yeah. it wasn't physically. So they, like, they were using a scare tactic that was not physical, whereas, you know, they went straight into it, back into the bullying and the intimidation. Yeah. Which was, you know, not a very Christian thing to do, yeah. but... So, yeah. the the Murdops had every right to just turn martin and co away but they brought them into their home to share a to break bread with them because this is also a very christian thing when you break bread with somebody to showing that you to a degree trust them you're extending... and not just trust you you are showing them that i consider you like my brethren in our our space like i'm i'm extending you the courtesy that you might not deserve but you do in a sense i'm, I'm treating you as a person yeah basically yeah. So it's you you get the, it, it's just such a confusing scene. Yeah. Um a breath of fresh air before we get to the end of the book, which we're almost yes. there. We've got one, we've got one more good section and then uh, oof, uh 
Yeah, we're about to get into a little bit of the... uh, Yeah. But first. It comes up, but... So Fescue apologizes to the group again, saying that he can't give them directions to Noonville. He has no idea where it is. Uh, He's never really left his bit of land. How in the fuck did he meet Mildwort, is my question. And how did they they get teacups? Where did they get the tea from? That's part of her dowry. Come on. Okay. Okay, true. But the tea, like... They grow it. Where? England didn't start growing tea until they invaded India. People think tea is such a British thing. They have a tiny garden. Moving on. Anyway. (laughs) Um, But if they're headed on, like, if our group is headed on west, they'll have to cross the marshes and they need to be where the lizards who live inside it uh, because <laughs> the lizards are apparently cannibals. Well, if the lizards are cannibals, then they're not going to be a problem to the creatures who aren't lizards, are they? Brian, do you know what cannibal means? I don't I don't think he knows what that word means. I don't think he does. Brian. I don't think, you keep saying that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. It, it, it's, we haven't even gotten to them yet. And just no. Yep. Uh, this statement is echoed by their son because they have a son and a daughter. Um, they're twins. They're twins. They're little. Uh, and he says, yeah, cannibals or whatever the fuck. Um, mm-hmm. you make a, a very sna- uh, snarky comment about like, ah, oh, yes, teaching your kid to be racist. Uh, Mildwort scolds Burnett for speaking because don't you know, children are seen and not heard. They've scolded the children multiple times in this interaction by the way this just is not for the existing first time. just for it's as if they don't the children are like just supposed to be decorations this is the thing that i hate about like mid-century like family dynamics again this is why it feels so 50s to me yeah like this feels like they're trying to be that 50s nuclear family and it feels so weird because wild think... how how their teenagers started rebelling in the 60s and 70s right like i it, it feels like mildwort and fescue don't even like each other that much like they're literally they just don't they're they're going through the motions they're going through the proper societal motions and this feels like a very cold unloving household right. and it's very all right, all right. very just sad for 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 the the comedy of it and i i can make this joke because i'm queer Mildwort is is the the repressed lesbian. Uh, Fescue is a a aromantic queer man who is just doing what he's been told he's supposed to do all his life. And their children have no idea what's going on. They're just caught in the middle. Yeah. They're caught in the middle of this. If if this were like a whole community of rabbits, Mildwort would definitely have like her best like friend. Uh, and they would go do things, and they're definitely not. There's my alarm. They're definitely not lesbians, but they're definitely lesbians. But like they've never done anything, but they do everything together. And Fescue has like his like group of guy friends who are always just like making like joke like you know risque jokes about like their wives and stuff. And he's just like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's Our like. Wives. I- Headcanon is that like there's a whole little tribe of the rabbits out there that we just haven't seen, or I shouldn't say tribe, a whole neighborhood of the rabbits that we just can't see. A warren. Right now. A warren, yes. Oh, 
<laughs> yeah, so there, there's our little, they're, they're struggling. Hopefully they'll get a divorce in the future and they'll be much happier for it. And the kids will, they'll have joint custody of the children. And the children, it probably won't be the best for them. It's going to be a little traumatizing, but you know, they'll come out a little bit better for it. Uh, probably end up one of them is going to realize they're trans. The other one's just going to be gay. It's fine. I get, I get the feeling Fescue would be a better dad if she wasn't there to bark the orders for some yes. reason. Yeah. Which I, I hate that stereotype, but sometimes it is it is true. Sometimes... Now I just want to write fan fiction about this whole little family turning out to be queer <laughs> and the mom being transphobic on accident. <laughs> like, she just doesn't understand it, and so, like, she's just weirdly transphobic until, like, Fescue has to be like, listen, you gotta stop doing this to, to, to our other daughter. Like, she's doing her best. Like, they're, they're twins in more ways than one, honey. Yeah. <laughs> Think about this. You haven't lost a son. You've gained another daughter. Go buy her dresses. Come on. <laughs> I know you love doing that for, 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 for Buttercup. Come on. <laughs> anyway. Burnett is, is, is her dead name. She names herself Daisy. <laughs> Daisy and Buttercup. Listen. Somebody write this fan fiction for me because I'm never going to write it. <laughs> anyway, with that bit of levity aside, so uh, Malwort scolds Burnett for speaking. Uh, she just tells him, all right, you're excused. You and your sister go outside to play, but do not get too dirty. Don't stray too far from the burrow. Bedtime is soon. Does tea happen after dinner? When does tea happen? I think there are several teas. There's morning tea, afternoon tea. Um, I think this is the implication here is that they've had this is supposed to be like afternoon tea. Yeah, afternoon tea is a light meal typically eaten between three thirty p.m. and five p.m. I think the implication is is that these kids get sent to bed early. When is dinner time in the UK? Dinner time is between okay, so breakfast seven between seven and nine, lunch between noon and one thirty, dinner sometimes called supper. Between six thirty and eight, and tea is is in between uh, lunch and dinner. Yeah, I, I I get. I think the implication is supposed to be that these two get sent to bed like way too early. Uh, probably for speaking out, and it's just like, all right, you guys, you, no, you don't get mm -hmm. dinner, but we're not going to say that in front of strangers. Yeah, so you're you're going to bed early tonight. Yeah. I fascinating that in the united states tea time kind of morphed into snack time yeah what what can i say we americans love our snackies we do love our snackies our our you know that little bit of like a light like little thing to eat between lunch and dinner because you get hungry at that time of the day and you need like just a little something something to keep going until dinner we'll pick you up yeah uh, or i mean like there's also the way the spaniards do it where it's like they have a decent breakfast they have a huge late lunch and then like dinner is at like eight or nine o'clock and it's pretty much just like finger food. Yeah. Lunch meat. Mandatory light, nap like, time. Yeah. I mean, just Fluna showed me their way of doing things and I was forever ruined. <laughs> I wish that we could have mandatory nap time. I want a mandatory nap time. I want everything to shut down for an hour every day. Just so that we can rest. Please. God. Anyway, so the two children leave the the table quiet as shadows. They're just like, all right, bye, because uh, you know they're they're small. They're young children. They're bored. They're like, yeah, these guys are interesting, but now we're bored. 
we want to they're not play. actually going to get to play with them no you know like god uh, forbid mom actually let them show personality yeah mild wart very stiffly offers the group a place to sleep for the night um like she she says that like they don't have much but they could stay here for the night very much it feels very like this is the thing to do and she doesn't like it but she's not going to be rude yeah she has an image to upkeep yeah she is sticking to what she thinks is a proper and polite way to be which considering how like this whole awkwardness of the situation shows like there's a glimmer there of a good person it's just suppressed under a really weirdly placed um hoity-toitiness yeah uh, Rose politely turns her down and then asks Fescue for more information on the lizards. Uh, I will say this because I just thought about it. Uh, the dynamic does have the parents, though, being very equal with each other. We don't have, like, Fescue being, like, the man of the house vibe. True. Um, there's definitely, like, they're both there in equal measure. And I like He's that. also not... He's also not henpecked either, because like you no. know, there's the stereotype of like the oh the henpecked husband. He's not, he's not really super bossed by her. He's just like oh yeah okay honey. He's just very soft spoken. Yeah, he he is. A, they're all delicate creatures. Although Mildwort yes. seems to be the least delicate out of all of them. Yeah, she's just like I have things to do and things to say. Come on, people, let's yep. go. <laughs> so, uh, Fescue tells uh tells her to carry on to Marshwood Hill. And if the lizards give them trouble, they're to ring the gong and call the warden. He's such a nice creature. Uh, and Mildwort agrees, saying, oh, yes, yes, he, the warden is such a nice creature. Um, they, this gives off big, like, they're lying just because they want them out and probably want them to suffer just a little bit. Didn't the, 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 the like, poem that Polykin gave have something about the warden in it? It does, but it, it doesn't warn them about the warden. It says, like, if you end up in trouble in the marshes, go to the hill and ring the gong. Yeah, so, like, they're just reiterating that same information. But I, I think, yeah, you're right, like, maybe the warden isn't necessarily a nice creature, but I don't think he's going to be dangerous to them. I get the feeling he's going to be some kind of bird of prey. Bird of prey or somebody, like, real gruff and grumpy, or the warden is a yeah. fish. It would be really cool if the warden was, like, another dragon. That would be pretty neat. Yeah. Because it is a swamp. It could be any yeah. number of creatures. Yeah. You know what would be, be really ass- cool if it was, like, an egret? Oh, man, yeah. A or a heron. Do they? Yeah. They eat lizards, too. Yeah. Uh, j- random fact, uh, uh, ibises in New Zealand and Australia, you know, uh, bin chickens have bin figured chickens. out how to eat invasive cane toads. By Do you know how happy I am when I saw that? Them. Yeah, because cane toads are, are poisonous. They have a poison on their skin. The and uh, uh, ibises in in Australia figured out how to wash them so they can eat them, which is fan fucking tastic because they did this all on their own and they've started eating the invasive species. Hello, new food source. God, it's so cool. Anyway. Oh, um, nature. Nature is so cool. Uh, the four leave the burrow. Uh, Grum pauses, like, he digs out, like, some, like, candied chestnuts and other sweets from his pack. And just, like, gives both of the children a pawful. And he says, make sure you eat all of them. Get real sticky. Like, he... <laughs> Honestly, the kids deserve this. Like, they deserve some sweets. But Grum is also being a little vindictive. <laughs> He is, and it feels, it's just like, Grum, this is really, it feels mean-spirited again. Yeah. Like, these, like, because, like, sure, yeah, these kids are going to get to enjoy candy for a minute, 
and then they're going to get harangued to hell and back by their mother. Like, is this yeah. moment of enjoying the sugar going to be worth getting scolded and sent to bed without a proper supper? Because you know that's yeah. what's going to happen. They're going to go in, dirty and messy. Mom's going to be like, what were you doing? Get a bath and get in bed. No supper for you. Yeah. He's not helping these kids out. He's not doing them a kindness. No, but... Uh, He's doing it this... to get back at the mom who did nothing but give them food and advice. So she was, I think, potentially too Pelham and Grum, though, the way that she was acting, because they're both lower class. And Pelham is an yeah. ex... Like, Pelham is an ex-slave. He's been a slave his whole life. To them, this... To both of them, this probably felt very high-minded... And, like, she was looking down her nose at them mm -hmm. to a degree. Because even if she wasn't intending to come off that way, when you act like this towards, some, to, towards like, some, like, classes of people, that's how it feels. Even yeah. if it's not intentional. So, like, yes, but also, you know, to grow. No. Yeah. It, it, it is a nuanced and complicated situation. And essentially, it boils down to just be nice to people. Please. <laughs> Uh, except for uh, TERFs and Nazis. Don't be nice to them. They don't deserve yeah. it. Uh, anyway. Uh, Pelham, of course, as they're like starting to walk down the path, Pelham gives everybody a good laugh, play-acting as Grum and Mrs. Murdop at tea time. Uh, like, play-acting between the two of them. Uh, and Grum threatens him with his ladle to get him to stop. This was actually funny. <laughs> yes, this was cute, because they're teasing each other and their friends, and yes. they know they're just teasing. Yeah. Uh, late evening sees them reaching the edge of the, the marsh. And it is warm and it's got bugs and they're just like, oh god, no. Uh, they backtrack a little bit to the trees to spend the night. Because um, they're like, we're not, no, we're not camping right here. It is gross. No. Which, fair. Yeah, <laughs> fair. Uh, while settling under a tree, they accidentally spook some slow worms, uh, which are little legless lizards. They're so uh, cute. You slither off, hissing in annoyance. Uh, when teased if he'd like uh, scones or cucumber sandwiches for dinner, Grum says he's making soup and some pudding with some wild apples and black. Like, Grum has dug up like some mushrooms, so he's gonna make some mushroom soup. He's gonna make some pudding with wild apples and blackberries. Like Grum is just like absolutely the fuck not. We're not doing scones and cucumber sandwiches. I'm making good food. I want soup. And like, all right. I know Brian's going to make the slow worms kind of like be a little villainous here, but you look at them and they're really cute. Slow worms are such adorable and goofy looking little creatures. And like it super makes sense why you would have legless lizards in Britain, considering there's only two snakes. So you've got this nice ecological niche just waiting to be filled. So of yeah. course you'd get legless lizards in Britain. Yeah. Uh, dinner is enjoyed. There's a little bit more teasing and then the group falls into content silence. Slow worms, though, have returned, bringing about two score lizards to silently spy on the travelers. Uh, the leader watches the dying fire, knowing soon the group will be sound asleep. And it's just like, yeah, sure, those travelers who just plumped down on the, assumably the slow worms' home stole their mushrooms you know it's like hey these guys like ran us off our spot and ate our mushrooms can you clear them out honestly within their rights yeah like, but I'm, also I'm, like they they don't speak the same language so there wasn't like a way to well communicate especially because martin gets out his sword and like doesn't verbally threaten them but like like until they're out of sight is like 
has the sword out in a threatening manner. Like, there was no room for, like, speaking or negotiation here. There was just, no, you guys need to shove off because these books are extremely mammal-centric and Mm -hmm. uh, it frustrates me to no end. Uh, Back with our escaping slaves, it is dawn when they reach their hiding spot along the cliffs. They have run all night. Uh, they all collapse to catch their breaths. Uh, uh, Goshi arrives behind them, having hidden their trail. She reports no one is following them, and that they must still be fighting each other. The Rosehip players start organizing the group. Balaw sets uh, up a watch. Castern uh, gets a foraging party going. And when Roanoke asks who's to be cooking, Trefoil says it seems to be her again. It should have been Selendine, but she hasn't shown up to work yet. Roanoke plans to fix that, though, uh, because no one is going to lay about on her watch, but uh, everyone's concern grows as as they realize that no one seems to have seen her. Celandine is missing. Which I didn't expect, but it, again, it's part of that back and forth. Like, he keeps slingshotting back towards, or rather boomeranging back towards Marshank. Like, every time they start to pull away from it, he has to think of an excuse to get them to go back towards it. Yeah. And I mean, half the slaves are still there, so... Right. Uh, Barkjohn holds a poultice to his wound and is fed by Brome and Feldo. He asks about the commotion and is told of Selendine's disappearance. And he says that he saw uh, saw her helping to push the cart, uh, but he blacked out. When he came to, she was gone. So she must have fallen. By now, she'd be lost or captured. And Feldo says that he's gonna go find her, uh, when asked what he'd do if she's captured, he says he'll free her or die trying. And then, like, goes off. Uh, Barkjohn stops Brome from stopping Feldo, saying his son has a great anger in him. Barkjohn understands what Brome doesn't, because his son has spent most of his life as a slave. Um, Roanoke, of course, uh, finds Feldo making lances out of good straight wood. He's, like, burning their ends in a fire and then sharpening them down by taking off the burnt material. Yep, it's it's uh, an old-fashioned method to make old-fashioned but still deadly weapons. Yes. Uh, she tries uh, a gentle tease. Is he starting a one-creature war? He responds steadily and without humor. Whatever it takes. He got them into this. He'll get them out of it and settle scores with Marshank. And instead of trying to talk him out of it, she asks how good he is at throwing. Feldo boasts about his strong muscles from years in the quarry and shows how far he could throw. And, like, he can throw pretty damn far. Uh, And, of course, Roanoke says, (laughs) yeah, but she and Bala can throw much farther and faster than that. But he isn't impressed by her boasts. And, like, Bala has come up at some point during this. And Bala carves up a throwing stick. Uh, and once he's done, he does indeed surpass Feldo's throw. Basically, he has this stick. It increases his, uh, reach. Like, has the lance notched into it, and then he yeets it. And it goes flying into the water. Like, way past Feldo's throw. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is called an atlato. Which I've learned that Atlato, the name, comes from the Aztecs, but Atlatls have been found in, like, Paleolithic hunters in Europe, like, for, like, 10,000 years or so or further back. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't know that Europe had throwing sticks like this. Like, it makes sense that they would, but it seems that they weren't as popular as they were, down, like, in the South, South America and so on. 
which is why I was just like, wait, atlatls? They have atlatls in Europe? Yeah. Um, they're still useful now, too. Like, oh, atlatls yeah, are, like, very, very easy ways to extend your reach for throwing things. Listen, it doesn't matter how advanced your society gets. Sometimes a good old bit of physics applied to a stick is the best way to go. Yep. Uh, Roanoke explains that they had won many a bet with this. It's brains over brawn, basically. And when she asks if he'd have them with him to take on Marshank, he agrees. They'll go see if they have Celandine at Marshank. Of course, at Marshank... <laughs> Clog and Badrang are having a full-on insult-flinging, spleen-venting argument, each intent on blaming each other for the debacle. And of course, mid-argument, Badrang slips back into Corsair speak because, as much as he wants to pretend it isn't, it is his default. Mm-hmm. Um, Clog has enough of the argument, though, and marches off with his crew. By his reckoning, the slaves who escaped are fair game to whoever catches them first. So that's what he's off to do. And of course, when asked if he wants to go after him, Badrang says no. Where is Clog going to take the slaves? He doesn't have a boat. He has nothing to feed them. When he He's going to come back to Marshang. And when he does, Badrang will just take back what's his. Um, uh, he's flattered by the vermin who asks, and he boasts how he could beat Clog any day. And it's like once more we get the trope of Smart villain, stupid, stupid lackeys. Yeah, because he's just like, this is why you're you're uh, a horde uh, member and like not the leader. You know, because I'm smart. Uh, yeah. And of course, now we are with Celandine, and she is indeed lost. Uh, when she fell, she had cracked her head and passed out. the The poor gal has a concussion. Uh, uh, upon waking up, she makes a great fuss and a cry, and when no one responds to her, cries even more. Because uh, she's so used to people being like, people being there to wait on her hand and foot. She is the yeah. darling of the troop. Of course she starts crying and people should be scurrying to help her. She's big, like, young actress syndrome going on here. Um... Uh, after a little bit of, like, no one coming, she gathers herself up enough to, like, primp and clean herself. She's, like, tilting her head at, like, a coy angle to hide the bump on her jaw. Uh, and then she sits down uh, to do more wailing and asking why no one is coming to her aid. Artistic wailing. She's just, this is such a weird juxtaposition between, like, the two women in this book, because we have Rose, who is extremely competent, Roanoke, who is extremely competent, literally every other member of the troop is extremely competent, and then we have Celandine. Who's the spoiled, she, she's played up as the silly, spoiled woman. You know, yeah. like, she doesn't know how reality works, she thinks everything revolves around her, and... It's like, yes, okay, there are women like that in the world. There are men like that in the world. There are non-binary people like that in the world. But it feels weird. Of, yeah, she's part of a traveling, like, uh, troop of, like, actors who have been in bad situations before. Yeah. She knows the the stakes. She knows the consequences. Why is she acting like this? Who knows? Um, she's he got just, young actress needs... syndrome. He, he needs a damsel in distress for yeah. Feldo to want to rescue. Yep. She, sure she enough. is the plot bait. Yeah. <laughs> she sure is bait. 
sure enough, one of Clog's crew spots her, uh, and he's sure she'll have some information. So when she lets up another whale, he responds this time, advancing on her with a wicked grin and his cutlass, which makes her scream. She's just like, oh god. I mean, I would too if I was faced with that all of a sudden. Yeah. Uh, and... Warning. Bad savage tribe tropes. Threat of eat- eating sapient creatures. It's not cannibalism, though. It's not cannibalism. But he that's, keeps that's, calling that's, it cannibalism. It's not how cannibalism I, I would assume he's using it more loosely in the sapient creature eating another sapient creature level. But it's, it's still one of those things where it's just like... Eh. No, if they're different species like this, it's not cannibalism. Yeah, it's still bad. Yeah. Having written multiple sapient species that do this, it's not cannibalism. (laughs) Uh, Martin's group is caught quick as a wink. Hordes of lizards swarm around them. All four are trussed up, paws tied, with a noose of vine around each of their necks. They are forced to run or be dragged as the lizards head back to into their swampy home. Eventually, they all four fall unconscious from the strain and lack of air. Like, the lizards are just going, running through, like, the muck and the water and the mud, taking these four with them, not caring if they can keep up. They're gonna... They'll, they'll drag them uh, all the way if they have to. Uh, it's a bad situation. Yeah. Uh... They awaken the next morning, tied to stakes and covered in mud and bits of leafage from the swamp. Like, they're unrecognizable as creatures because they're covered in so much muck. And by tied to stakes, they mean that they're, like, attached to them. Like, dogs on a lead. Yeah, it's uh, gross. Uh, Palum had been up first and greets the aching Martin, warning him not to make too big a fuss because they're surrounded by lizards. Said lizards seem intent to stare at them, and their red-frilled lizard stands before them, the short sword laid out in front of him. Martin goes over to Rose to try and revive her, but he gets quickly pulled back by the lizards. He protests uh, that he was just trying to help her breathe, but not to escape, uh, and the leader indicates without words that he is to stay put at his own stake. Palum comments that the lizards don't say much, do they? I'm still not sure if them not talking is better or worse than the broken English. Yeah, it's... Because it, you know they've got something. a language, but it's like, I, I still don't know if this is better or worse, because like, it's less, sl- somehow slightly less irritating to me, but it, uh, nope, it gets worse. Yeah, it gets worse. Uh, Rose and Grum wake up a bit later, uh, and as the, the morning goes on, the rules they learn are simple. Speaking in low tones are allowed, and they are not allowed to mess with the vines that are tying them to the stakes. They can loosen the vines around their necks just enough that they can breathe, but if they try to loosen them anymore, they get retightened. Um, after a bit, they're given gourds of good, clean water, and then a trough of what they figure is some kind of bland, if inoffensive, mushroom porridge. Uh... Uh, and it's laid out in front of them. Like, they don't get individual portions. Uh, Rose tries to say, no, thank you. Uh, she's had enough. But the leader yanks her noose and gestures for her to keep eating. 
Uh, Palin makes a joke about them being fattened up to be eaten, uh, and then the four remember the Murdoch's warning about cannibal lizards. Yeah, and then they have their oh no moment. Uh, this is cannibalism. I am it's, so tired. They're not the same species. It's not cannibalism. If they're not also, the same this species. is a fucking marsh. It is a swamp. It is full of food that the lizards can eat. There's no reason for them to be doing this beyond, I don't know, of... Um... He literally just needs something to... One, something to slow them down. And two, he... He, it's like he has a compulsion to put in these stereotypes to make the other characters seem more noble and more civilized. It's that yeah. it's that British culture. It's that it gets the, worse. the 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 um, uh, colonizer culture coming out. You you are the superior. You are the better. Yep, it's bad. Uh, they are fed twice more. Uh, by then, the lizards have begun to scrape out a large roasting pit away from where they t- they're tied out. Um, a dipper appears then, it's a kind of bird, and it twitters at them. Rose realizes that it's speaking to them, admittedly in a heavily accented way. Like it, The way that it speaks is that the words sound vaguely similar to like the words that the uh, four of them would use. Uh, and it's warning them that the lizards are going to eat them. Rose tries to communicate back, successfully asking the bird to help them and go warn the warden. Uh, a third round of porridge is brought out as the bird flies away. Rose refuses, and the red fruit leader comes to force her. But Martin's fighting spirit flares up, and he gets into a fight with the leader, nearly drowning them in their own mushroom porridge. Uh, as here's where this trope is like so insidious because it's like you feel like this moment of satisfaction and triumph as martin fights back because he's fighting back against like injustice and cruelty and so on but then it's just like but this is just a straw man stereotype it's literally not a person yeah this it's empty it doesn't feel good um as retribution, Martin is dragged towards the fire pit because he gets absolutely just covered in lizards and they, like, get him off of the leader and just start dragging him to the fire pit. Flint is struck to tinder and the other three are pulled out as well, Rose defiantly yelling for them to let Martin go the whole time. Cut back to Celandine. Uh, and she calls upon her many roles in the Rose hip players, Acting the brave heroine when confronted with Clog's viciousness. Like, it's great. She's like, be like, get away from me, you ugly brute. And he's like, well, ugly. Because, like, he's always extremely handsome. handsome. Yeah, he's he's just like, his offense of being called ugly is really kind of cute, actually. Because he's just like, what do you mean, ugly? Because he, he, it, it literally says in the text that he's only ever seen himself as extremely handsome. Uh, <laughs> and which is. A jab at his looks because he's a fat stoat, but, you know. Who's constantly dropping food into his beard. Yeah. Um, uh, they exchange sharp words, and he finally gets fed up with it and lunges for her. Uh, Celandine trips as she tries to back away, but she turns it into advantage by uh, pocket-sanding him. Um, while he wipes the sand from his eyes, she fucking books it. Uh, she regrets every decision she's ever made about making her tunic have all these frills and extra bits because it's extremely heavy and awkward to run in. 
Um, he orders his crew after her. Only one stays with him, and the other charge, uh, charge in as a whooping mass, confident that they can catch her. Because, like, how could one little prissy squirrel outrun them? Right? She's just uh, a squirrel maid. Yeah. Uh, she is not a good runner. Uh, and when they hit a beach with a large dune, three sea rats manage to catch up to her. Like, there's no way around the dune. She has to go up and over it. Which, if you've ever tried to run in sand, you know how impossible that feels. Yeah, especially once you hit a dune. Like, holy shit. It's gonna eat you. <laughs> Uh, she deflects the first Sira with a sharp kick before he can harm her, and then he is slain with a lance. Like, the lance just sprouts out of his chest. Uh, the other two arrive, accusing her of slaying the rat. Uh, and then another one is slain by a javelin, and the third loses his nerve and just fucking books it. Fair. Uh, yeah, fair. As they're out of earshot, Bala is like, get over the fucking- get, get over here. Get- come over the dune- Zelendine fucking just uh like she's sitting there frozen for a second and he's like you're going to miss your cue get the fuck up here and out of reflex she scrambles over the dune um which is very very funny to me personally as a theater person (laughs) (laughs) uh literally just as an aside last night I was making sure that everybody was paying attention and doing like you know our warning uh to to like the the game and when it, we hit five minute i did five minute warning till call and i was like oh god that's my assistant stage manager showing but it works though doesn't it it does work uh roanoke uh sweeps celandine up and covers her mouth you know so that she doesn't scream while bala and feldo prep their throwers again uh back to the slain rats their bodies are are plundered by their former companions because they, the, obviously, vermin have no respect for each other. They no, have no, no respect no for the dead, etc., etc., etc. The surviving rat stutters out that it must have been the squirrel maid who'd slain them. They never should have messed with the magical beasts. And a confident weasel says she can't be that magical. He can see her tracks heading up the dune. Clog encourages him to follow said tracks. If he sees anything, he's to sing out. Uh, he reaches the top of the dune. The weasel has enough time to call out Captain It's Three before his body tumbles back down the dune with a lance and it's in his back. Uh, Clog mutters about three of his best beasts being killed and that they'll catch the murdering scum who've done it. it takes one to know one, sir. Yep. Uh, he waves his cutlass and calls for a charge. Uh, and it is a dismal failure. None of them want to get to the top of the dune first. Not even bullying and threats from Clog can get them to go. And when a javelin hits a sea rat through the paw, they scamper back down the hill. They settle away from the dune to catch their breath. Clog takes his claws off to remove sand from them, berating his crew the whole time. Until a lance nearly hits him pinning part of his coat to the earth. Uh, he declares it must be a monster behind that hill because no one can throw a spear so far. And they all run for it, Clog in the lead. Clog's like, no, I take it back, uh, let's go. Yep, yep, nope. We're not fucking with that shit. I don't blame him. I would be booking it too. Yep. Uh, the trio are relieved by the retreat of the Corsairs. They would not have been able to hold off a proper charge and their camp was only just one more hill away. 
Uh, Celandine is immediately just pops right back on into her charming act, saying that, oh, she had just slipped away to try a plan. And uh, Bullock calls her on it. What of the vermin chasing her? Uh, she said that she hadn't been scared. She knew they'd never touch her because brave, wonderful Feldo would always protect her. Poor uh, Feldo's over here like, please don't. right back into that. Trauma, what trauma? <laughs> yeah. I don't think it does because she's got... Like, some people have that own little world of theirs that they live in, and I think she's one of those folks. Yep. And blushing up a storm, Feldo just kind of helps her uh, lead her back to camp as she flatters and flirts. She's, like, taking his paws and hers, and it's just being a ham. She's uh, an actress. Yeah. we we She's the spitting image of a young actress. <laughs> uh, Brome slips out of hiding then. He'd watched the group the whole time because he had followed Feldo to try and help. Uh, and he was resenting being treated uh, like a little kid at camp. Um, and so he slips down to observe the dead bodies below and mull over some plans in his own head. What if he were to sneak back to Marshank and free the rest of the slaves? Wouldn't that make him as grand as his hero Feldo? And so he takes the Corsair's gear, messes himself up with sand. Uh, he he just dresses himself up as a Corsair. He's got a hat low on his head. And he struts back off towards the fortress, practicing his Corsair speak and declaring himself Bucktail. <sighs> I don't think I like this book very much anymore. Hopefully it gets better. Again, I remember this one being one of my favorites from when I was younger, so, it, like, it has to get better, right? I mean, when you're younger, you don't notice a lot of these things either, though. No, it's not, no, you don't. Yeah, and it, written-wise, like, as a teenager or a kid, I probably would enjoy this book a lot, too. It's just being older and more aware of the tropes that he's using, I can't enjoy them as much. Yeah. And not just that, but again, it's like this book's weird tone. It's a prequel. It's a prequel... So we don't really get... We're not like, worried about Martin. We're worried about everybody around him and the way that they're being written is just so weird. Right. And yet, it's like, I'm not worried about anyone around him because, not to be mean, but they don't matter. They don't. In the long run, they don't matter because they never show up in any of the other books that we have of Martin in the future. So we know that in the long run, they don't matter. Except for yeah. Tim Ballisto, who, again, doesn't show up until Mossflower. So yeah, um, I have like the I have I have three thoughts for what's going to happen to Brom. He gets killed. This is the least likely option. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. Brom usually doesn't kill kids. Yeah, he gets caught. Most likely option. Middle option. Somehow he pulls off the greatest amateur performance of his fucking life, which knowing Brian, honestly, pretty likely. And then he gets caught. Because these are, like, meant to be, like, books for kids. So that fantasy of, like, tricking the dumb pirates is absolutely yeah. something that kids would gravitate towards. Yeah. And, I mean, we've already seen that, you know, uh, Clog is inclined to believe people who flatter him. So, yeah. if he gets... It's, it's, it's a case of if he gets... Isn't. Yeah. So Badrang is potentially the one who's going to see through it. Who yeah, it's definitely a case of if Claude gets tricked by this again. It's like, yeah, now he's holding the idiot ball. Yes. Um, so that is the end of this bit. For our questions, what was your favorite weird food? There wasn't really one this book that I have to say. I think I want to try that, like, the the little, like, pudding that, um, that Grum makes. 
with the like <laughs> uh, wild apples and like blackberries. I think I just want to try that. I am a little um, curious about the cucumber sandwiches too. Like they sound like I a like nice cucumbers. light snack. Well, you don't like. I don't like cucumbers. You can have all of them. I'll eat the scones. Okay, deal. How dare yeah. you? Uh, was there an animal that appeared that surprised you? Slash, did an animal subvert expectations? Uh, no, not really. I mean, I'm I'm a little yeah. sad about the slow worms because they're really cute. Like they're legitimately just these cute little legless lizards doing their own yeah. thing. I and think then... the rabbits surprised me. They didn't subvert expectations, but I wasn't expecting rabbits to be here. No, especially not like weird 50s nuclear family rabbits. Yeah. At uh, least like which... British nuclear family. Yeah. God. I mean, in the 50s, the American nuclear family was similar. Yeah. Um, what's your favorite part so far? I honestly enjoyed everything Bala did with his magician act. That yes, was like same. the shining part of this book was just Bala yeah. getting to be a ham and a half and mess with these guys and really turn up his charm and guile to help get them out using his wits alone. Yeah. That's always it, a good time. It, it, it is. I love theater. It's great. I can't wait until we get to the long patrol. Love them. Um, all the rest of our questions are for later, so we didn't get any questions about this part of the book because I think we forgot to ask. <laughs> we we did just kind of dive into this. Yeah. Um, sorry, guys. It's it's a been a, it's been a very busy couple of weeks, and it's going to get busy because I'm starting a new full time job. So we're kind of just playing things by ear again. Thankfully, yep. we've got like a decent little tiny buffer of one ep extra episode, so I'll have time to edit these two episodes. Um, uh, so. Thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful that you lent us your ears and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. Uh, this has been Izzy. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. You can find uh, the other podcast I do at Hope's Hearth Pod, which is an actual play podcast. Uh, it's a lot of fun. You should go listen to it. Um, they have other things going on, but I need to go eat lunch probably. So... <laughs> You can find me at Kitsy in a box across most social medias. I'm most active on Tumblr, but you can also find me on like Twitter for affinity. Uh, I do still have a DeviantArt, but I'm Dark Kitsune Girl over there. Um, yeah, I make and sell little dessert foxes called Kitsunday. Uh, you can order custom little designs and I do regular art commissions as well. And now I'm going to be working full time. So we don't know how much longer I'll be doing that as or Maybe not as prolifically as I have been the past few years. Yeah. yeah. We're going to see a bit of a slowdown, which means probably a bunch of people on the server are going to start trading Kit Sundays more. Yeah. Or like, hey, guys. I was like, I'll, I'm definitely going to have to limit the number I take now. Like, mm -hmm. it's going to be f like five at a time and it's going to take a lot longer to get them done. So you've yeah, been warned. Which is totally fair. Yeah. I mean, um, like, I'm going to have an hour lunch break, I'm guessing, which will let me get, like, the sketches done. It's actually finding time to sit down at the tablet. That's going to be the challenge. Yeah. Uh, so you can find us both at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Please send us questions, comments, etc. at either of those places. We have our Ask Box turned on on Tumblr, so feel free to send us questions there. We do greatly enjoy reading them and answering them and, you know, talking to people. Uh, also, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice so that other people can find us. We do no marketing. It's just us. 
Uh, we're doing our best, but we're also extremely tired, and Kit's about to start a full-time job. I work yeah. full-time. Like, we don't have the time to be marketing. Help us out here. Review us. You and can review us on Spotify now at uh, uh, five stars, you know? And we're not going to take a shilly, scammy food companies. I'm getting so tired of seeing Fracture on YouTube already. God. Uh, oh, yeah. Just buy these pre-made frozen meals that are totally organic and nutritious. D- no. Stop and it. And I'm not putting us on Acast because I have to pay for that. And <laughs> I'm not doing that. Yeah. I'm broke, okay. bitch. Anyway. <laughs> may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry from us to you at Redwall Abbey. Bye. All right, clap at the 45. Yes. on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at abby archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on coffee at ko-fi.com forward slash hs enclave this podcast is part of hearthside enclave and some other shows you might like are hope's hearth a solar hope punk actual play podcast and post-apocalyptic news radio a fallout inspired audio drama